Hello and welcome to another weekly podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. If you're in the Mankato area, join us every Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at MankatoHilltop.org. Best of all, God is with us. Well, continuing on with our Sermon on the Mount series, we've made it all the way through chapter 5, and we've looked at several different uh, chunks of chapter five together. Oh yes, more treats. You can take the bag with you if you want. Well, maybe mom and dad don't want, don't want that. <clears throat> so now we're getting ready to start chapter six, which is the, the second chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins this way, starting in verse one. Here's the reading from Matthew chapter six. This is Jesus teaching his disciples of the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order, that, in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Holy Scripture. I just want to begin by saying thank you to everyone. I was on vacation last week. I wasn't here. Justin Klein preached on last Sunday. He did a a bang-up job. And then Justin and I did a part two of that sermon. So if you weren't here on Wednesday night, you haven't heard part two. So you can listen to it on the podcast. You can find it on our YouTube feed. But I just want to say to everybody here, thank you for uh, allowing your pastor to be able to get away. I was at Lake Vermilion fishing with Jeff Adams. Some of you know Jeff Adams. He's a pastor in Fairmont. He's married to Paulette Adams, who's our choir director and lay leader. Um, You know, we caught 88 walleyes. Is that a good fishing trip or not? I don't know. Um, I'm I'm used to catch... What's that? (laughs) It's a good fishing trip if I bring some walleye back home for the congregation. You know, we'll have to do a fish fry. That'll be kind of fun someday. But it was nice to be able to get away. We were at Lake Vermilion State Park, brand new state park if you haven't been up there. Uh, We were in the new section that they just opened last year during the pandemic. So we're going to continue on today looking at um, this Sermon on the Mount, but before I do, I have to tell you an inside joke that all of the clergy have. And I'm getting ready to go to annual conference, so I'll have some of these conversations coming up, several clergy, not just in Minnesota, but particularly in Minnesota. Um, They will say, and that when, when asking where people have gone to seminary and where they have learned their education, there are several United Methodist institutions across the United States. Boston University, um, there's Emory University in Atlanta, there's uh, Southern Methodist University down in Texas, and there's one particular university. I, I went to Garrett Evangelical, that's in Chicago on the campus of Northwestern University, but there's one in particular that the people who graduate from there they just, they just, 
they feel like they're more superior than everybody else. And it goes like this. How do you know if a pastor graduated from Duke? Oh, you don't even need to ask. They'll tell you. So Duke University, that is a United Methodist school. Um, if you're not familiar with that, it's in, uh, it's in North Carolina. You probably know their basketball team, won several national championships. They've been, very, they've been very successful over the years. That is a United Methodist University, and I've been there before. It's a wonderful place to visit. Uh, a friend of mine got a master's degree from there, and when we were visiting, he said this to me, and I thought, oh, this is a southern thing. I, he said, this is the house that tobacco built. James Buchanan Duke, he was basically the one who invented modern cigarettes um, and how to manufacture them and how to sell them, and that's how he made millions and millions of dollars in his day. But I, I love the fact that, yeah, you don't even need to ask where, which pastors are from Duke, they'll tell you. It's a process of doing this thing that we all do, which is virtue signaling. Look at how good I've got it. This is a very common practice in our country, it seems like. And it basically describes all of social media. Now, you might be saying, what is virtue signaling, Pastor? What is that? I've heard that term before, but I'm not quite sure. Here's what virtue signaling is. The public expression of opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or social conscience or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. That's virtue signaling. Like the Duke graduates are better than us. So the goal of all such displays is to, to signal to the world and to other people as look at how, look at how, how much better I am than someone else. I, I am more noble than someone else. And, and, and in an effort to kind of garner social approval, and now, examples of virtue signaling, there's so many. I mean, we could list a whole bunch of them. But they can be from temporarily changing your social media profile to support a specific cause that's making lots of news at the time. You know what I'm talking about on Facebook? They get the little filter that goes over your picture. It says, I support whatever the social issue is that everyone's supporting right now or whatever bandwagon they're hitching their cause to. It could be something like, you know, putting a political bumper sticker on your car, or what has become more notorious recently is whole brands of American companies will virtue signal for a social cause. Have you seen this before? Sometimes it backfires on them, and sometimes they're, they're trying to do this to garner support, to say, look at us, look at how great our corporation is or our company is. News alert, news alert. Corporations don't care. They just want you to buy their products, right? So the virtual signaling is an attempt to say, hey, I should go walk into that store. Hey, I should go buy this type of beer. Hey, I should go put on this type of clothing. No matter how much you think they agree with you politically or how much they do not agree with you politically, and maybe you're out, you see the virtue signaling, and you're like, I am never setting foot in that store ever again. They're virtue signaling and hoping to do what? To get you to buy their products. So if there was ever a message from Jesus against virtue signaling, I think this is it. 
I think this is really the message that he's trying to say. He's trying, on the Sermon on the Mount as he's teaching, he kind of shifts here now. So we've kind of shifted. Prior in, in, in chapter 5, he was saying, you've heard the law that says this, but I tell you something different. We've been doing that for several weeks now. You say, uh, uh, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now he's kind of shifting focus, but with the same sort of intent on our hearts. He wants to get to the really innate desire that we all have to puff ourselves up and make ourselves look good, especially to others. Now, that desire is not always bad. If you woke up this morning and decided, I'm going to put on some nice clothes and some great makeup, great. (laughs) Nothing is wrong with that per se. But it's the motivation behind that that can be troubling. It can go really sideways, So it starts off right away with Jesus saying, beware of the hypocrites. Wait a minute. Isn't that everybody? I mean, if we're truly honest with ourselves, aren't we all a little hypocritical at some point? I wish we could all live perfectly normal lives where we do everything in our heart, in our head, and everything completely aligns. But there are moments where If I'm honest with myself, I might say one thing and do another. I know that never happens to anybody else, but it just, so he's kind of like striking a chord right with everybody, right from the beginning. Now, you know where hypocrite comes from, maybe, right? Have you heard this before? Maybe you haven't. Hypocrite, it's a Greek word. It was actually the word for a stage actor back in the day, a hypocrite. Well, this is a, in ancient times, those actors would often wear a mask to cover up their true identity. And over time, that word took on its modern notion of practice, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. You can kind of see how the, the play acting now informs our modern understanding of what it means to be a hypocrite. Spiritually speaking, when we act with hypocrisy, We miss out on the spiritual rewards. Hypocrites have their rewards here. That's what Jesus said. They'll have their reward here. And those who avoid hypocrisy are able to lay claim to a different type of reward. What do you think Jesus is really getting at here? They'll have their reward here. You want to be rich and famous? Okay, be rich and famous. But watch out. It's not all it's cracked up to be, right? They'll have their reward. But what could he mean by saying there's a different type of reward? I think he's trying to get at something in our hearts. A reward that goes beyond just the material aspect of life. Notice that for Jesus, being involved in the synagogue and giving alms and praying, they're not optional. He's not saying You know, if you want to do this, he's saying, no, when, when you do this, when you pray, when you give alms, when you do this, so he knew that even in the act of doing charity or even in the act of praying or even in the act of doing these things that come from our faith, that we need to be careful. There's a shadow side to everything, even when we put our faith into action, even, even a well meaning thing can go sideways. 
I'm taking a leadership class right now with a former Duke basketball coach. You maybe know him as Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. He was there for 42 years at, at the University of Duke. He's the one that led them to many of their uh, championship games. And he helped me see something this week about humility. Because he talks about when he was recruiting players in, in this leadership class about one of the aspects that he wanted in his basketball players was a sense of humility. I mean, basketball is filled with the most humble people, right? So, so, so he was not necessarily looking for the players who would puff themselves up and I know I'm the best basketball player ever and, and to go. He would say one of the characteristics he would look for would be a humble humility about their play. I mean, obviously he wants great players and he was able to recruit great players, but he said there's also a shadow side to humility. And, and, and I didn't really think about this. So maybe there's a shadow side to everything, right? What is the shadow side to humility? He said the shadow side can be a lack of confidence, a lack of willingness to take confidence in a situation, which you also need when you play basketball. You can be humble and keep passing the ball. It's not my turn here and keep passing the ball until something bad happens and no one ever like takes the initiative and takes the shot and goes for the basket. So you got to be able to be both humble but then also have confidence. And those two don't always go hand in hand. So he spent part of his career talking about how he would recruit humble players and then how to encourage them to be more confident and what it took to have confidence in, in going after a national championship. Now, I, I love that analogy because I think it gets at something where Jesus is talking about that reward, that reward that comes not right here, but later in confidence. I think he's trying to say, when we have humility in these things, in giving, in praying, we are not confident in ourselves. We move that confidence into a stronger sense of confidence, the confidence that only God can give. You know the God who can move mountains, who can heal the sick. Our confidence here today is not in our nation or our army, but in the God who teaches us peace, inner peace, and peace in our world. There's a confidence that's not quite grounded in our world, but is grounded in something bigger, stronger, and it comes from God. So there's a great strength I see in humility, and Jesus, I think, is inviting us to be humble and not to lack confidence, but to put the confidence in the right place. Put the confidence in him. Put the confidence in God. Because there's a great strength in humility. But it doesn't come from within us. We can tap into that great source of love the prayer of God, which is Jesus, when we have the humility to do so. And it's almost like the more, if we, if we put more trust in ourselves, more trust in how we see the world, and then we're less likely to see God move and act. We kind of put ourselves in the place of God, and then, and then God's like, I'm ready to be a part of your life. And you're like, no, thanks, God. I've got this. I'm going to do this on my own. Because God's love dictates our free will. God never forces or coerces us. That's why giving is voluntary. Prayer is voluntary. And I just love these three verses. Maybe you've seen this before. When you give alms, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Maybe you've heard that before. I just pick up on one verse here. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How does that work? Notice that Jesus isn't saying hide it from other people. It's impossible to do that. If we're called to give alms, there will be multiple people who will be involved in the process, especially on the receiving end of giving the gifts. So that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, really, hide it from yourself. It's another way of him trying to get at that internal motivation, which is so key in all of his teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount. Why would we need to hide it from ourselves? Why would we need to do that? Because he knows our best bent towards sinning is wanting to claim things for ourselves, a high status, a, 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 a virtue that we can signal to the world maybe. Now, this is not a, this is not a message against giving or philanthropy at all. I mean, since we're talking about Duke, are you familiar with the Duke Endowment? James B. Duke, the one who founded Duke University, he was located in, uh, in North Carolina. In Charlotte now, they have this endowment that he set up when he died. He set it up before he died, and then when he died, his whole estate went into the endowment. Or just to give you a few numbers behind this, um, the, le- the legacy of James Buchanan Duke, who was one of the greatest industrialists for tobacco of the 20th century, was established in 1924, so it's coming up on its 100th anniversary next year. Back in 1924, they gave $40 million to start it. In 1925, it was expanded with another $67 million from his estate. If you were to adjust that for present value today, his total gift is $1.4 billion. That would have been equivalent to it at its time in 1924 and 1925. So for almost 100 years, this foundation has done so much good, and you haven't heard anything about it because it's mainly in North and South Carolina. Now, you know the university that has his father's name. He was given the money in memory of his father, but they both had the same last name. But it has done countless good at feeding the poor in the Carolinas, of educating those who come from various different backgrounds. This foundation has done tremendous, tremendous amount of good, even though it was founded with tobacco money. Maybe there's some complications with that. But James Buchanan Duke was a lifelong Methodist. He didn't flaunt it, but people knew he was wealthy and he was able to use his money for good. So I think there's not a message against philanthropy here at all. I think Jesus is saying, no, go do good. Just be careful of the motivation. Be careful of the motivation of why you're doing something like that. And I think that's why he has to say to us, be careful of yourself. Don't let your left hand know what your right is doing because it's in here that it can go sideways. Now, it's, it might be hard for us to think of how some people showboat with their prayers. Oh, wait, we live in America. That happens, right? You've seen that before on the news. Christians doing things. 
Some Christians storming the Capitol, other things like that. It seems that recently, uh, of the last number of years, we've seen a lot of people doing great showboating, expansive prayers, going on the street corners, and mainly those of the political stripe, trying to get the news cameras on them. I don't remember this at all from growing up. Maybe you don't either. In fact, what I remember from growing up are the TV cameras on the Billy Graham crusade and people working toward uh, internal, internal spiritual life growth. And now it seems like a lot of the Christian stuff that ends up on the news is like showy. It doesn't feel real authentic, does it? Kind of more there for the news cameras than it is about humbly following Jesus. Matter of fact, when you see people on TV praying or, or shouting their Christian message, is the first word that comes to mind humility? And it's not for me. If ever there was a verse that gives us caution over street preachers, this is the one. I guess it's kind of hard to be humble when you have a bullhorn on your mouth. So what does this mean for us then? I was thinking about this a lot. I'm guessing for most of us here, you're not going down to the street corners with your bullhorn. You're not trying to get all the news cameras to come and focus in on you. You're not trying to pray in a way to be seen by others. However, maybe there's an inward thing that Jesus is also speaking about here too. Here again, Jesus almost admonishes us to hide the motives of prayer from ourselves. Just like giving, don't let your left hand know what you're doing, go into the room, shut the door, be in the dark, completely seal yourself off. Almost to hide yourself from everything, maybe even our own selves, so that we can be in direct communication with God the Father. Because here's the thing. Maybe he's getting at the inward selfishness that our prayers can be. Friends, I'm guilty of this. We are all guilty of this. There is no such thing as a bad prayer. We can cry out to God whenever we want. But have we made prayer all about me? My needs, my friends, my job, my situation. So maybe he's trying to say, there's a bigger expansive communication there than just you. It's not bad, but maybe there's a great big world beyond you. And when you live in communication directly with God the Father, and not just speaking, but also listening and hearing what God has to say, then it can let those inward selfishnesses dissipate. They, they this, this kind of go away. And a humility in our prayer then comes forth. So rather than prayer being this one-way street, me to God, me to God, me to God, me to God, it becomes a boulevard where I can speak to God and he speaks to me. And I say things to God and God's like, oh yeah, have you thought about this? And I'm going... No, I haven't. I need to think about that. Because I'm only thinking about myself if it's a one-way street. So he tells the crowd that's gathered here, go into that inner room of the house. Find that place that where you can shut out all the distractions. He's giving us wisdom on how to commune with God here. Because all the outward symbols, all the outward symbols, they get in and they corrupt our thinking. They get in and mess up our head. 
But then we can't receive that inward grace. But that's it. Grace is always received. It's a gift. It's given to us. When we're not humble, we think we got it all. I don't need that gift. I got everything I need. But when we find a a humble place in prayer with God, maybe on our knees, in the dark, something comes to us. We receive that as a gift. It's a grace. It's not something we do. It's not something we earn by going out and doing things. We're not made more holy by our prayers. It doesn't work like that. But we receive this grace. We receive this confidence. We receive this love that comes from God. And we can become then more holy. More holy in our prayers. More holy in our giving. Because we have received God's mercy. We have received God's grace. And notice the seriousness in Jesus' words. Quit fooling yourself. Quit fooling yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. We're all called to pray and to give. And may we do so with confidence of Christ guiding us on that path. Okay. We're going to stop there for today. Thanks for listening to another podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. Don't forget to visit us online at MankatoHilltop.org.